Hey, Darren, I'm watching the best show on television. You want to know what it is? What is it? I think I know, but what is it? Inglorious Trexperts. <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, that's wait a second, that's not say. a TV show. It's but not it a t- is. But it is. It, it is. is. It's a TV show because you can watch us on the Electric Now app. It's an app for streaming video podcasts as well as movies, television, and more. You can see us on demand on Electric Now. I demand it. I demand because I demand it. <laughs> Commodore Stone can watch us on the Electric Now app. And how do you get the Electric Now app? Because apparently people are having trouble understanding the concept. Just go to your app store from whatever device you're using or all of the devices you're using. And you download it to your phone, your iPad, your Roku, your whatever, whatever you, whatever you, whatever you have that streams other than a Viewmaster. You download it and, and then you watch it 100% free. There's no charge, yeah. there's no Patreon, there's no Electronic Frontier. All there is is a free app. So download the Electric Now app from your favorite app store and watch us on Electric Now. You must learn to listen to the Rebel and the Rogue or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better. Available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And today we're going to trek a little far from Trek. We got a really great guest we're about to bring on. But before I do that, speaking of great guests, it's Trexpert Emeritus. That's what I'm calling him now. <laughs> is, uh, you know him as a writer of such movies as Thor and X-Men First Class. He's been a writer-producer on TV shows like Black Sails, Terminator, The Sarah Connor Chronicles, Fringe. And he, of course, is Ashley E. Miller. Welcome back, Ash. Thank you. I, I, sometimes I feel as though I've never left. <laughs> it does feel that way. People have said, you know, why isn't he officially a Trexpert? Why is he not just like a Trexpert? I, I like keeping you as the special guest. I just think, you know, it's I'm like, a yes, you're dude. a Trexpert, clearly. But I just feel like, you know, maybe you'll stop behaving you're, if we promote you. You're Jonathan so Harris. You're, John, you're Jonathan Harris. So anyway, we, we got a really fantastic show coming up. Um we are going to have joining us any minute now is going to be the uh, president of production at 20th Century Studios. I, I, it's so hard for me not to say Fox, but of course they dropped Fox from the name for obvious reasons. But uh, you know, 20th Century Fox, as everyone knows, was bought by Disney. And now the, the studio is called 20th Century Studios. And the president of production is Steve Asbell. Steve is um, a remarkable guy. He's a huge genre fan. Um, and he has been behind 
a ton of movies you love. Uh, stuff like Kingdom of Heaven. Um, uh, he's been uh, a guiding force between some of the Planet of the Apes movies, Logan, Chronicle, The Martian, um, uh, and, and, and worked with Mangold recently, James Mangold, which we'll talk about on Ford versus Ferrari. Um, he is uh, uh, obviously worked with um, Ridley Scott a lot on movies like Prometheus and Alien Covenant. He's just a fantastic guy. And, of course, the X-Men movies. So, uh, you know, in addition to Logan, I know which a lot of people think is a contradiction in terms, but in this true, in this case, it's true. He's a remarkable studio executive and also a genre fan. We're going to talk about how do you reconcile those two things, uh, you know, being a, a studio executive and also a passionate fan. And we're going to filter that through the prism of Star Trek. He's a because... very he's a very big fan of Star Trek and his bona fides of uh, his knowledge of Star Trek uh, is very impressive, I have to say. He's a huge Star Trek fan. Um, you'll see that he has uh, 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 Eagle Moss Enterprise A. Uh, uh, if you're watching on the Electric Now app, uh, the video podcast, in his office uh, underneath the uh, one sheet of Chinatown. But he's super articulate. It's a really great perspective on how, quote-unquote, the sausage is made and how it's not just sausage, to, but but how seriously and how, how much of a responsibility... Uh, a, a good studio executive carries on their shoulder. And we might just ask him, if he were at another studio, what he would do with another franchise that he hasn't worked on. But we wish he would. <laughs> so um, it's going to be a great episode. Ashley, um, anything you can tell us about Steve before we bring him in here? Yeah, um, look, man, I've worked with a bunch of executives over the last 20 years features tv and uh he is definitely one of us um he is one of the smartest best development people i've ever worked with uh i uh, i have been honored to call him boss so i'm very excited to to bring him on and talk to him about star trek uh because he can talk your ear off about it he loves it every bit as much as we do that's fantastic. And what I found out also is he's a big fan of the show. So it's a thrill for us. It's a thrill for him. It's thrills all around. So now let's bring on Steve Asbell. And there he is. Steve's joining us now here on Inglorious Trexpers. Welcome. Welcome to the show, sir. Hello. Thank you for having me. Greetings. I'm, I'm uh, a huge fan of your show. I feel like I won the radio call-in contest. Uh, <laughs> no, you lost. That's the problem. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's. Uh, I, I I love the show. I, I feel like I, I listen. Uh, I definitely listen every weekend. But it's just you guys bring such uh, you know joy uh, to 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 the subject and to fandom and and. Uh, it's in short supply right now. I feel like so it's always a nice thing every weekend. Well, that's really of, nice for you to um, say. Thank you. Keep, keep the lights is. on. You must have loved the uh, Tom Perry episode where he talked about uh, developing Star Trek, the motion picture, you know, and yeah. how he left. That was a real, that was just a terrific show and, and really an unsung uh, hero. And I, I, there's so much about that episode I love, um, whether it be, uh, you know, when he's talking about being at UA and, and then, you know, wanting to, to do Star Wars. And then when UA didn't get involved in Star Wars, he bought Fox stock. And of course, uh, his Barry Manilow airplane story, which is priceless. So yeah, that was a great that was a great episode. It's always interesting to hear from people you know who were working at that time. I mean, certainly as you guys have have said uh, on many episodes, and 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 I'm, I'm as we were talking about Mark Cushman's books, 
the story of Star Trek the Motion Picture being, you know, a long and detailed one that, that spans the, the 70s, yeah. um, which is fascinating in and of itself. And how it finally, you yeah, know, I, I, was made post Star Wars and, you know, going from Star Trek 2 to Phase 2 to, oh, we're going to make a motion picture and we're not going to use that concept and, you know. Some yeah, things don't change, I guess. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you've had your fair share of properties that have gone through the quote that kind of development hell. I mean, Star Trek, you know, really, uh, it was 73 in which there were first noises about it coming back. And it's not until 79 that it sees the light of a projector bulb. But yeah. of course, that's nothing out of the ordinary for, uh, for, for, for uh, Hollywood development necessarily. Not for gamesters such as yourselves. <laughs> but uh, I want to, you know, specifically, uh, you know, people are probably saying, you know, uh, Steve, you know, Steve, you know, Steve, uh, you know, uh, he, he did do a Star Trek movie, although you could argue that The Martian and Logan were probably two of the best Star Trek movies made the last 10 years. <laughs> well, um, I was wondering um, the same thing. I, why I was on here. What the hell you are know, you not- doing here? Yeah, the Admiral think... Stockdale of Inglorious Trexperts guests. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow, that's a deep cut. <laughs> Damn right it is. <laughs> Ross Perot's running mate. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to say, you know, there's such a cliche about the suits, you know, about executives. And they don't, you know, it's all about the money and they don't care and they don't understand this, this stuff. Well, you know, obviously they're wrong. Because, uh, you know, Steve, you could go toe to toe with us on Star Trek lore uh, any time. And you're a passionate fan of the genre who has been involved with so many great franchises. And, uh, you know, I'd love to know kind of sort of what your touchstones were growing up and, you know, sort of what attracted you to, uh, you know, to the business in the first place. Well, it's kind of you to say. I mean, the 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 cliche isn't always wrong. I'm sorry to say it. I wish it were about the money. That you know, that would be that would be nice on some level. But it, it's for me, it was you know, growing up in the late '70s, early '80s, like everybody else, it was it was films. I mean, I you know saw Star Wars when I was four, and it sort of changed everything for me. And I think I knew by the time I was 11 that I wanted to work in film in some capacity. I was growing up in New Jersey, and you know, obviously didn't have any connections in Hollywood and. Um, other than reading Starlog, uh, you know, for most of my childhood, um, it was really just the having parents who were you know, understanding and supportive of, you know, kind of that habit, uh, you know, and all that it entailed of, of, you know, going to movies every weekend and catching stuff on TV. I mean, I feel like with Star Trek, unlike you guys, I, I really, the films were my gateway in a sense. And I think it's an interesting thing because in many ways, the question of Star Trek as a show or a movie, you know, that kind of comes up a lot, like, which is, which is better, you know, which, and, and I actually feel as, as much affinity as I, I maintain for those films and certainly the original ones, you know, that it's real value is in the series, it's in serial. Um, and, but I think there's, for me, what got me was, we're, we're still those characters. I mean, it's one of the things that's so incredible about Star Trek in general is that how durable it is. I mean, whether you were there in the sixties, whether you discovered it in syndication in the seventies, whether like me, you, you, you uh, saw the films and fell in love with those characters at the sort of, you know, more mature uh, uh, time in their life. It, it, it's looking at it over the last 50 plus years. It, it's such, I mean, think about what else is as durable and mutable as Star Trek having lived in so many different 
incarnations, both in features and in, in television. Um, and I think never quite like that, that to me is to talk about touchstones. Like for me, that Star Trek was the characters and the ships, frankly, I just fell in love, you know, as a kid when, that we were talking about earlier, just the refit enterprise was everything to me. And then, you know, the Excelsior, what the, what the heck is that? Like just the notion of, um, of, of, of the bond between these characters, which again is interesting because I feel like the thing that, you know, I discovered later with the original show and which I think everyone sort of associates with the core value of Star Trek is, you know, is the hope, is the exploration, is the, is that element of the, of the series, which you, you, you could argue has no place and certainly in the films in the eighties, it wasn't about that at all. It was about their relationships. And I think, you know, I have a real, not just nostalgia. I mean, I, I saw motion picture when it came out, I certainly didn't learn to appreciate it for its brilliance until, until much later. And in fact, was able to connect why that film was so great with the story of the show and the story of the show going off the air and then coming back. And obviously the great story behind Star Trek II and how it sort of was a great Hail Mary of, of, a, of a situation that turned into a kind of, you know, classic obviously, but then also, um, you know, four, three, two, three, four, five, six, you know, the, those, the sort of arc of those characters. I see what you, you did guys, there. Yeah, well, it's, it, it, we just had the anniversary and I felt like we couldn't really, you know, normally in, in such times I would say something kind of loving but snarky about it, but these are weird times and, you know, it's felt a little frivolous. I appreciate it. Um, but you guys have definitely, it's funny, you, your, your episode on Star Trek Three definitely made me, you know, reconsider. I don't want to Scott Mance the whole thing, but I, 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 I definitely... I, I have a real uh, soft spot, more than a soft spot for that film. I'm just kidding, Scott, if you're listening, I, I love your episodes and, and I appreciate your, your passion for, uh, for the start for the Kelvin films. Um, but I, sorry, to, I don't mean to digress just because you're talking about the movies, but what you were saying about uh, how three undoes, you know, everything powerful about two, uh, not just Spock dying, but, you know, uh, Kirk's son um, suddenly, you know, going away, uh, the Genesis planet falling apart, like everything that was resolved or everything that was at least uh, established in the second film was completely uh, uh, taken apart in the third film. And I hadn't actually ever considered that until you guys said it. But what I loved about it and what I think is the power of those films, and I think reflects the films that don't work as well and why not is that they all represent um kind of these moments and dramatic moments in these characters lives big events yeah. you know the 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 kirk getting older finding out his son you know his old enemy spock dying the destruction of the enterprise the the i will say that the return of spock at the very least was the was the story of the movie it wasn't like yeah. a soap opera where it wasn't General Hospital where he showed up and right. and, and he's back, he, he was on a vacation. But the whole movie was about the sacrifice that you make yeah. for this Hail Mary to bring your, your friend back to life. And I think that that's why it even worked, even despite the sort of cheat, which today I think you'd have a much greater, I mean, you did then to, to an extent, but a much greater kind of furor over, you know, those assholes, what? They totally cheated us, those a-holes. Um, <laughs> But, damn but, suits. but again, for me, you know, Star Trek was a, was a big one in that way because I, I, I feel like at every point in my life, 
Um, and I feel like literally I'm telling everybody's story in some way or another. There was a, a moment of like Star Trek was maturing with me. Like when I was in seventh grade, when, when next gen came on and I watched the pilot with a, with a notebook. Like I was literally like, I was so excited. I couldn't like, I was just like, Oh my God, this show looks amazing. And the ship and all that. And you know, then going through the nineties and, and, and deep space nine, which I think, you know, you guys have said, I mean, it's just some days is the best show that's ever made. I mean, it's like there, there are episodes of that show that you just can't believe were made and sort of are still feel sort of undiscovered in, in a way. I mean, not, I mean, obviously for fans, but you know, and so again, like, and yet the, the, the second thing I'll say about it is just simply that Star Trek, you know, never, it had its bouts with kind of mainstream in a way at various times that the, obviously the, the sort of period leading, leading up to the film um, I'd say Star Trek four in a way, the first hundred million dollar domestic uh, movie a, a film that shouldn't work. And yet you can show it to an audience today. I showed it to my kids and it's like delightful. Like you kind of can't believe it. And yet it sort of is that film. And then definitely uh, all good things. I mean, by the time you get to the end of that show, um, you know, and, and I think by the end of, certainly at some point in the 90s, there were different, you know, when it had so much going on at once. And then obviously, to some extent, when, um, when I guess you could say when, when Into Darkness opened, uh, you know, that there was a sort of another. And yet, with all of that, it never quite, you know, people always talk about, well, Star Trek never does well internationally. Star Trek never... It, and it's because, and it took me a long time to really understand this from the perspective of, of, of my job and our job. It's like, it actually isn't for everyone in a strange way. Right. It, it, it is in its, in its themes and in its, in its sort of spiritual aspect, but it, it still has a kind of, by its very definition, a kind of integrity that a lot of other things, I think, you know, get repurposed and remixed and pushed out again, especially in this age of, of IP, that, that, you know, it, it is what it is. And it's what's so, uh, I think, wonderful about it is that no matter what happens, it still um, uh, has a kind of grounding and an integrity that, frankly, you just, you got to be into. So, and I think that's cool. I think that's actually more important than ever. So Steve, but, here's my question for you. I mean, that you, you bring up this whole idea of, you know, we live in an age where there's IP and we have to repackage, repurpose um, move things around, push it back out. And sometimes it works great. Sometimes it doesn't work at all. Sometimes, you know, the, the jury is divided. But you're in a pretty unique position, um, being the president of a studio and having worked in development and overseeing, like, so many big movies um, and overseeing this process with all kinds of IP. Like, how do you, you know, reconcile your, your feelings as a fan of some of these things um, with your job of of, uh, of managing them as a product, right? It's, I mean, even for, for us as creators, writers, artists, directors, you know, we have our own relationship with these things, but, but we at least get to say that, hey, you know, I, I did my interpretation of it, sure. um, and I don't have to be responsible, really, for, for what happens on the other side, but, but you kind of do. What's that like? How do you balance that? Well, first of all, it's very just lucky to be here to be honest i mean being having a career in the industry when you still you can be going for as many years and still love the films and still love the process even though it's a job and even though it's a it's a it's a a job that you cannot control the outcome of your livelihood is dependent on things that you can't control and that's for everybody that's a 
a sort of thing you you sort of learn to to deal with. But it is when I as a fan, I'm just I am truly lucky to be here to be a part of these things and to to be you know in a position to empower talent. I mean, what I've learned, I mean, which is to say very little in in, in the years in the sense that I think learning is a is a is a dicey thing. I think your your sort of tools get better, but the the danger of thinking you figured it out is, is for anybody, I think, a, a, a manifestly dangerous one. Um, but what I have learned is, you know, typically the, the most important decisions, in fact, the only important decisions that I make are the first ones. It's what's the script and who's the filmmaker. Right. I mean, who is the, who is the vision, who is the talents um, that my job is to sort of give them the space to, to, to do it. And ultimately, you know, you can never make those decisions. There's no correct, you know, it's, this is not a thing where you can be like, well, I've done it. You know, I've, I've certainly made the mistake of, you know, not listening carefully, which I think is one of the, 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 the bigger mistakes you can make is that you want to get a movie made. You, you, you hear a thing. Okay. That sounds good. Or you, you, you either think they heard you or you, you think, you know, you spend two years going, Oh no, he, he heard, she heard me or I heard. It. And it's, they have a very different, the director's telling you in the very first meeting, what movie and that's typically the movie that ends up on the screen in some way. And so, look, it's hard. Even films where the script is great, the director's great. I mean, movies are hard. You guys know. Yeah. I mean, making any of this stuff is really challenging. I mean, it's great fun and it's exciting, but it is, it is so much um, that you're just sort of going, and you and you just gotta hope that you know you, you, movies are made three times. They're made in development you know they're made in production where you're you're just trying to make sure you're making your day and it's in focus and you're getting all the work and then they're made yet again in post where it's an entirely different process you know where the it's funny you start out in the first phase it's you know two people sitting around a table and a stack of pages then hundreds of people and millions of dollars and then the third phase is two people in a room again at the end yeah. <laughs> you know, and, it, and it's i'm endlessly fascinated by that as a sort of student of it and I think, again, for me, how I reconcile it or manage it is simply, you know, like I said, it, it, it's, it's feeling like I have found the filmmaker or I've been able to convince a filmmaker to come and work on one of these movies. And, you know, we're, we're sort of talking about taking a kind of risk with the material that, that is still, you know, when you talk about a sort of fan project, I mean, I've, I've worked on two alien movies and I'm a, I'm a, huge huge fan of the franchise and so you know it was a real gift to be able to work on those films i've made five films with ridley and like you know but looking back at prometheus and, and covenant you know which i'm very proud of the work and 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 very fond of all the people that we worked with and i think that they, they were it was certainly prometheus prometheus an effort to kind of try to do something different you know and it wasn't ultimately always a happy marriage between two movies, an alien prequel, sort of stealth alien prequel, and a, and a sort of chariots of the gods story that I knew Ridley was obviously very interested in. Um, and then in Covenant to try to kind of bring things back to the alien universe, you know, and kind of made, I think it was successful in some ways, and in others, I think um, we said too much, you know, exposed too much about, you know, what's mysterious about the creature. So there's always things you, I think, learn by doing um, but it's, it's, again, I was going with Ridley Scott, you know, it wasn't like there was a, well, we're just going to hire this guy and I'm going to make a, you know, it was, the hope was to kind of move the whole thing forward. And I think, again, Alien's a very unique situation because their films, you know, sort of two of the greatest movies of all time, 
um, and then a bunch of other films, uh, you know, various, you know, people have various feelings about, it. I mean, they all having qualities to them that are commendable and artistic, certainly with Fincher's film. Um, but, but, you know, they're, they're films that ultimately don't always mesh with the bigger budget, you know, element when you're making an event film and you've got to have all of those, you know, and, and they're already films. Like it wasn't ever a way to kind of pander to make them sort of, you know, more accessible, but they're expensive. And so you're making a movie where you're, you're like, okay, we've got to have all that stuff in it, but we also have to have it be scary. And so we have to keep people contained. And so, um, anyway, again, I apologize. I feel like I digress with our uh, questions, but, but it's really about talent is, is the answer is, is trying to figure out who those filmmakers are that, that, you know, you're going to jive with and, and they're going to bring something new to it. Just as an aside, you mentioned Prometheus, which obviously is a very polarizing film. But I remember seeing that in IMAX when it opened um, and thinking, oh, my God, I wish Star Trek looked like this. You know, I, particularly the first 20 minutes, hour of that movie yeah. when they're on the ship and you're meeting this amazing crew, you know, Idris Elba and Charlize Theron and, and, and just uh, and, and you're thinking, wow. And I mean, it really I think in terms of production design i think it was arthur max right yeah, Darren? Yeah, yeah um so uh it's just a stunning so you know whether it works ultimately as an alien movie or or not and of course those glorious scenes of michael uh, fassbender uh it, it, watching lawrence of arabia uh it's just um there's so much i love about that movie um that you know it it, it totally i felt to me like there's a lot that, that like filmmakers who are ultimately going to make star trek could really learn from this film uh, and I just even love the way that the ship was designed where it was open and wide and and it was dwarfed by the universe and so um, well, anyway Ridley, I don't you know Ridley is an artist I mean he's the sole uh, I've worked with them for about 15 years and, and it's a privilege of you know unbelievable professional personal proportions I mean he is he's the best and I think he doesn't ever go into and he, he never I know it's a cliche but he never phones it in I mean like he really dives into all of these things. And I think in the case of the design of the ship, there were a lot of things that he didn't get to do in the original film. You know, the original Nostromo was sort of had a similar design, you know, the double layer, the, the double um, level uh, cockpit and all the things that he couldn't do. I remember walking onto the set of that and I was like, oh, I, I'd seen the pictures and I, and I was like, holy shit, this is huge. Like it was a massive, massive bridge. And I think we built, we had to extend the bond stage um, to accommodate the um, the interior of the pilot's chamber, you know, of the of the um, uh, not the ship, the not the Prometheus, but the alien, uh, the engineer pilot's chamber. Oh, yeah, sure. And it's funny you mentioned Lawrence Raby thing because we had to. Um, it was uh, uh, right before um, Peter O'Toole had passed. I'm trying to remember the exact time frame, but he had to approve um, the the use, the use of, of the footage of the, yeah. of the clip. Um, because it was always an awesome, and we just loved him. I'm a huge fan of Lawrence, which I, I just opened my 4K. Uh, Me uh, too. I came Lawrence. today. <laughs> I, I, alongside my my Jerry Maguire and League of Their Own 4K, which I'm like, sure. Yeah, I, I see him up like, there yeah, behind I, you. I bought. <laughs> yes. No, that's the that's the Blu-ray yeah. from from before. But um, I bought it for Lawrence of Arabia. All the other films were bonus. No, it's bonus similar. Features. I was like, they're no <laughs> Columbia's no fools. They're like, sure. You guys are gonna buy this thing? Great. 
Um, but no, it, it was uh, having made, you know, it was Ridley's first um, film shot on digital. It was his first film in 3D. And it was, you know, for me, having worked with him since about 2002, getting him to come back to science fiction or helping getting him to come back to science fiction. Um, and just to be a part of that is like, come on. I mean, it's, it's the greatest, uh, you know. And I, I had a similar, so on X-Files, I didn't work on uh, Fight the Future, um, but I came to the company like end of 2001. And like one of the first things that I did was, and I was a junior executive and I sort of went to my boss's Rolodex and I cold called Chris Hart. Mm. And I was like, cause I was such a huge obsessive fan of that show. And, and he like agreed to meet me for, I don't think he knew. He was like, Oh, he's an executive at Fox. He's calling me. I don't think I realized I was like a, a, a junior executive. 20th century Fox. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think he was just like, is he what? And, you know, it was, it was a sort of eight year process of trying to get that sequel made, which had its challenges as, as, as yeah, you know, sure. but, um, but, but the play, you know, the, the, the sort of joy of that, cause they were all, I mean, despite the, the, the way I don't, I think there were things about that movie that were ambitious and things that worked out less well, but the process of making it and working with Chris and Spotnitz and Dave and, and like, as a fan, when you talk about it, just doing this as a fan, you're just like, right. I'm on set with Dave Duchovny play as he's playing Fox Mulder and it's just and Jillian and it was um, I, I couldn't I couldn't you know I couldn't have been more grateful for it. But it's tough because you know and I want to talk about being a fan and, and, and these franchises but you know it's interesting because to me Chris Carter and X-Files there's a lot of analogies to be drawn with Gene and Star Trek. They had a love-hate relationship yeah. with the monster that they birthed. You know, on one hand, it gave them financial security and it gave them a place in the popular culture and huge success. And on the other hand, they wanted anything they could do to get away from it and do something else. And yet the sirens call kept luring them back. Yeah. You know, and and so well, I, and Chris, you know, had a bunch of show. I mean, he had Millennium, he had Harsh Realm. I mean, there were there were a number of you know, things that I know he felt very passionately about. And so it must be hard, you know, you know, I'm sure there was a, a Lucas too in his way, you know, it's like you do this thing. I mean, I always find it amazing, you know, working on a film and I'm sure you guys feel this when you work on your stuff where it's like, it's amazing to do. And then you finish it and you spent however many years you've spent on it. And it's like, you're, you're happy that it's done and you're happy, you know, that it's like that, that you've had the experience and then it's out there and it belongs to everybody else. And you can't have the same experience, you know, people are like, oh, I love The Martian. I'm like, oh, it, 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 like, it's so good. I'm like, it is? Like, I mean, it is. It's great. Like, it's, it's awesome. But like, I, I can never see it in the same way. And I'm just the executive. And I'm just like, people, you know, like, like uh, what, but it's part of what I love about doing this. Again, even whatever your part in the process is, if you're fortunate enough to be close to the center of it, you know, I've made a bunch of films with James Mangold, um, and I, I, he, you know, he's he's just an incredible, incredible artist, and and a and a, and a filmmaker who's still, um, you know, I, I always think of it as he still has this very independent spirit. You know, he made Copland and Heavy, um, you know, these films earlier in his career, and he still has that independent filmmaker spirit, but he has learned the vernacular of the studio uh, and knows how to kind of. Uh, you know, bend the process to his voice. And so watching him with actors, we, we did uh, the Wolverine and Logan and then Ford vs. Ferrari and working on some other stuff. But 
what I, I, I learned from watching him is just ultimately, no matter how big the film is, and, and definitely working on big movies is a management job. I mean, you talk about younger filmmakers or less experienced filmmakers. It's not a talent question always. It's like, it's a very big challenge to have to suddenly delegate and manage um, artistic decisions to, you know, a big team of other people. But no matter how much machinery is around you, um, how big the set, how big the, the how many cameras or, you know, it, it still comes down to what's happening on the floor with the actor and the filmmaker and the script and that's it. And whatever serendipity, whatever, you know, kind of interesting thing that's going to happen is going to happen because that, that crew and that filmmaker has created that space. And that's, what's amazing about watching somebody like Jim, for example, work because you're just like, I mean, people, you know, Logan was a great experience and, and just sort of watching uh, Jim and, and, and Scott Frank and Michael Green and all the people that worked on the development of the, pro of the script, you know, people, it's funny, people after the fact are always like, oh, what a, you know, what a risk. You know, people are like, oh, this is crazy. You guys kind of took this, this risk and made this, you know, um, dark Wolverine film. And it's like, if you read the script, it was not a risk. It was like, it was fucking great. Like, it was just like, of course you would make this. And I mean, it was, a, I guess you could say the risk was an expensive movie and all of that. And you have to look at it. People like to compare it to what the films have done before and what, you know, which are obviously at that point for, for Hugh and for the X-Men movies um, was a massive kind of global thing. But, um, you know, ultimately it, it's just, it's, it's, sorry, I don't, again, I feel like I'm digressing. No. Into this. I'm going away <laughs> no, no, from no. The, the questions, but in fact, um, I tell you awesome. stories about Patrick Stewart and Logan. Let me well, just interject say, really quickly, just ahead. about about Jim Mangold. Um, I was privileged enough to spend just a little bit of time with him on a on a project uh, that that you would probably recognize. Um, and one of the things that struck me about him, and it's it, it goes back to what you were saying about the director kind of tells you in the first meeting what the movie is, and you just kind of know, and you either listen to him and believe him or you don't. Um, but he does. Um, we had a conversation where he was. Talking to uh, talking to us about walk the line and his insight about walk the line and I don't know if I've talked about this on four thirty or not but um, but he said one of the smartest things uh, that anybody has ever said to me about making a film about uh, about an action scene or about any sort of event set piece in a film and what he said was in walk the line those songs weren't just songs all of the songs were events right. Hmm. This is the song where Johnny gets his recording contract. This is the song where Johnny falls in love with June. This is the song where they propose, where they break up, where he breaks down, where he falls apart, where they come back together. And it was just, oh, well, shit, They're yes, all, of yes, course. The set pieces and of the movie. That's yeah. exactly right. And they don't just occupy a space where they're just crowd-pleasing. They are advancing story. They're advancing character. And his action scenes are like that. Like, when he's at his best, they're like that. They're they're telling us something about them. I, I think that's the thing that's, that's marvelous about um, Logan. And it's, frankly, I think, the best X-Men movie ever made. Uh, so, uh, yes. And you wrote one of them, so that's high praise. Because <laughs> I, very, I, I, I love First Class, one. as you know. love First Class. Thank you and Zach did an amazing job, as we know. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, he, he, he's always, you know, I will say not to turn this into a Jim Mangle podcast because I can easily do that too, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. um, because I'm always, it's funny, I'm always trying to, you know, 
get him to be like, oh, well, let's do, you know, some some franchise movie. Of course, now he's doing Indiana Jones. Yeah, Indiana Jones, yeah. He, he, when he was designing um, the the sequences in Ford versus Ferrari, he, he was, um, you know, he uses previs like everybody, but it was, he wanted, he did, they did so many, um, so much insert work of, of faces. Like he always wanted to be able to connect every shot with the story of the two, anytime the drivers could be alongside one another and that you would basically be, you know, outside the, 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 the cab of the car looking in. Um, but, but anytime you could be on Christian's face, um, he would cut back and it would, even in the previous, meaning it was designed very explicitly by him. We're not just, you know, a lot of times the previous will come back and it'll be, you know, the guide to do the sort of budget, the bigger sequences in the film. And there were obviously a bunch of, of, of big races in that movie. But I mean, it sounds so obvious after the fact, of course, you want to see the, the drivers and you want to feel the story of what's happening inside because there was a, I don't know if you guys saw the film, but there was a, there was a, a moment in the movie where in the script, you know, we were always like, God, is this going to play where, you know, he decides Spoiler, he, he's been asked to to um, slow down and after he's already won the race. And, and you know, we were like, is, he, are, is the audience going to understand that, like, this is still a victory? You know, that this is, a, 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 this is more of a victory, frankly, than winning the race. Because ultimately, it's, it's his own kind of transformation and it's his own kind of understanding of his life and his relationship and his, you know, his, his art, basically. Um, because Jim's, as an aside, I mean, Jim's movies are very much, you know, there's, they're often about the artist in the machine, um, in a way, and how the artist sort of works within the system um, in some way or another, which I always find an, an interesting pattern. But that shot, I mean, how he was able to kind of convey, you know, this, he's in a profile Christian and, and he's on him and he's on him and he's on him and he drifts down and his hand, you know, kind of hits the gear shift and he slows down and the music, like he spent a long time on that cue. And it just, it was just cinema. It was just like, oh, of course, the script, you know, the script just said he slows down. And, you know, it, it just turned into this very, very beautiful moment where everything was played on Christian and the action of slowing down the car. And when you watch the film, and again, it was a complicated ending. Because again, we had, to, we had to end the guy, you know, again, spoiler, they lose. He died months later. And so we wrestled with whether to include that in the movie and I felt like it was a cheat if we didn't and but how you can make that film feel again not like victorious in the way that you would be won the race for America but rather you know he he realizes he says you promised me the drive not the win and then he puts his arm around Matt and he says she could be faster and you realize that that was his statement about art you know, and is sort of in that world of like the competition and how we measure ourselves, you know, uh, in the race, that it was just about the art. And it's one of the purest, sorry, again, I don't want to take this into non-Star, because I, I'd love talking about Star Trek. And no, I feel like I, it's okay. Yeah, this is my chance. You it's know, we love our, our digressions. It's completely but, but, related, though, because what you're talking about is the quality of, of good storytellers, right? And that's all we want. That's all we yeah. want in Star Trek, you know. But do you guys feel, you know, I was curious about this because I have my opinion about this sort of films, you know, that obviously there's a lot more Star Trek in TV. I mean, it's sort of, but like what, how do you feel the films have done justice or not to, to Star Trek in a way, you know, again, knowing like for me, having that real um, love for 
sort of 80s, set late 70s and 80s, you know, Shatner, Nimoy, and the whole crew, um, it's interesting. I find the films difficult in a lot of ways to reconcile with the shows. Um, I think I think that we've talked about this before on the show, but I, I think the the main thing is that the the need for motion pictures to have you know uh, huge uh, stakes, right? Uh, you know, every, every time they go out on an adventure, it's threatening the entire galaxy, right? right? Something like that. And that sort of wears a bit thin after a while, after the, you know, third or fourth time they have to do something like this. It, it sort of doesn't ring with truth anymore. And I think that the, the best Star Trek stories um, have that trappings, but mm -hmm. they're actually about something completely different. They're not about that you know, the uh, existential threat. They're about yeah. how the characters are dealing with trying to fix it. Because right. the characters dealing with it is far more interesting. And and that's what makes it. And if you don't have that, that personal interaction and that personal interest in it, then it falls flat because it's just the same old damn story over again. Right. It's interesting because I... I you know, the, so much is made of uh, the world of television right now, which you guys I know are, are, are much more active in. I feel like I'm still in old media in a sense, even though we're making movies for streaming now and we're making for, for theatrical as well, that I think so much is made of, of, of uh, you know, how much television is better in certain ways. And I think to some extent, there's truth in that television is a writer's medium. Television has been you know, the production values have been going up, the, the, the ways in which, you know, it's resourced, you know, at a time where I think, you know, I, I wouldn't say that the movies have gone down, but I think that there's certainly been a kind of treading water to an extent. I mean, there's a certain, um, it's a probably much longer conversation, but sort of, you know, the last 25 years of, um, you know, DVD, international expansion, you know, all of it, that, but not enough is made. And so there's great television. And obviously, just as where you would have once said, movies are culture, television is advertising. It's not exactly true anymore. I mean, there's, you know, there's certainly been certainly, I mean, there always were all in the family and in Star Trek. I mean, it's not that, 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 that television didn't, didn't occasionally make incredibly powerful cultural statements. Um, or, or penetrate the culture in that way, but it was, you know, for, for a very long time, you know, just a way to sell toothpaste in between, you know, ads. Whereas movies had sort of always been a kind of, you know, um, uh, not just the escape, but not just, but, but culturally important in the sense that you had to basically make something that people wanted to buy on an individual basis. You had to buy a ticket for that film. And so it had to be made and marketed in a way that people, you know, it was good. And I think, um, I think part of what what I think doesn't get talked about enough in terms of now that they're both sort of as a number than ever, it's available. You know, everything is available, movies and television almost, you know, equally so. And you might even argue that the, the, the value proposition of, of streaming and, and the various options at home are sometimes more uh, compelling than going to a theater on a movie you're not entirely sold on, which is, look, I mean, that's the best in a way the audience for features. I mean, now it's hard to have this conversation when movie theaters are shut and we're not sure exactly, you know, What's gonna happen, in yeah. what form they're going to come back. Um, hopefully sooner than later. But again, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting, no one knows the, truly no one knows the answer. Um, but, but, you know, the audience 
I think we went through a long period of being able to sell the audience into a, a big movie, you know, a sort of roadblock marketing event movie. And at a certain point, you know, whether because of this just general savvy or a number of other choices, you just couldn't sell it into it as well. Or as, and so, so we're still in a little bit of that trying to recalibrate how you make these giant movies because they're also more expensive. Even the, the sort of middle range ones are more expensive than ever. You know, how you, how you make them good, you know, how you make them both uh, uh, marketable, but also playable. It used to be, well, it's okay if it's market. It's okay. It just needs to be marketable. It's like, that's not okay anymore. You actually have to have films on some level. That it needs to be appealing playable. and, and repeatable. Yeah. yeah. Or at least something that's going to deliver because people will hear about it. They'll know. And it's a very easy choice to not go. Um, well, what, but, sorry, go ahead, Mark. What, what permeates the zeitgeist really seems to have changed because obviously back in say the seventies, a movie would play for a year in theaters. Yeah. So it was ever present, you know, so rarely you would have something like roots or you'd have something like the day after in the eighties that was significant, but you know, people weren't the water cooler show wasn't necessarily be happy days. Did you see what the Fonz did yesterday? Right. He you jumped know, the shark. Just popcorn. But what happened it seems is because movies now um, come and go so fast and they're so, I mean, I hate to say disposable, you know, everyone gets excited about the new Marvel movie and they go yeah. for the next month and, and uh, they spend a ton of money and they watch it and they love it. And, you know, three months later it's out on home video. So it, it, it's a very temporary part of the zeitgeist, but then it, it moves on to something else where it almost feels like, you know, and this is the question now that I think a lot of streamers are facing does it pay to drop all these shows in one weekend if you're right. trying to build an audience because you know people binge it and then they're on to the next thing rather than you know parsing them out i mean it's i think it's interesting that cbs all access with star trek for instance you know doesn't just drop all the episodes at once you know right. they release it week after week in the old model and uh, you know i do feel like there's certain things about star trek that um you know, clearly uh, there is kind of somewhat mired in the past. And we've talked about this a lot, that one of the reasons those Star Trek films, you know, are sort of revered as nostalgia, but necessarily don't show up on anybody's best of list, except maybe for Khan, is because of the production values, because they were right. produced so cheaply and people were just trying to cash in on the audience, but didn't really believe in Star Trek as art. And also because Star Trek was a character-oriented and not, um, you know, event-oriented uh, yeah. kind of thing. And it was really Star Trek Four, which broke the format the most, which was a comedy, you know, that suddenly attracted people who weren't Star Trek fans because it wasn't really Star Trek. Right. No, it's um, it's an amazing. We talk about that in a second. I mean, Star Trek Four is is a, is is an impossible. It's just. I mean, looking at it now, I mean, it's just like I said. I think that it did benefit from a kind of runway of success from you know 82 on and even if the, that success was still limited to kind of you know genre success i guess that people it was in the culture and it was in this back in the in the zeitgeist and the idea that the film was so was contemporary and it was so entertaining and yet didn't completely shit on the fan like you know you still got to see your favorite characters and yet you know for me that's why i was making the joke at the beginning about the enterprise a like i i remember you know, because I, I remember after three, my friends and I were like, no, they're going to get the Excelsior. Like, that's what's going to happen. Like, we'd have, like, huge arguments about, like, well, they're going to, you know, they're going to get out of this, and they're going to get home, and they're going to get the Excelsior, and that's going to be the new enterprise. 
And so it was like, I remember the just thrill at the end of four of just them getting, I didn't love the interior as well, you know, uh, how they did that, but, but just the sort of reveal of the idea was, of them getting another uh, uh, enterprise like we knew. Yeah. This other constitution class ship. But what I was, what I was getting at, you know, in my unfortunately long winded way is that, you know, film, what isn't talked about a lot within the kind of, you know, which is better now conversation, sort of the basic, you know, differences, the narrative differences when you're telling these stories where, you know, movies are about, you know, are about transformation. They're about kind of conclude, you know, they're, they're, they're about conclusion in a sense. I mean, putting aside the, the sort of Marvel, the series, you know, which but films are about a character who transforms, whereas television in, in many ways is about the delaying of that transformation. Right and the attenuation of that feeling, which has its own pleasures, of course. And it's not, it's funny, it's not to say that television is not emotional, you know, capable of emotional moments, but it's a very different way uh, of telling, and, you know, Ash, who's made TV and films and, you know, knows this intimately, is that just the way and the kind of economy that you have to sort of pursue telling the story uh, on film, you know, in, in a feature, which, by the way, I would add, as much as I, I, I I'm not a kind of, um, with respect to the, the big screen. I mean, I love it as a, as a person and as a novel, somebody I love, love movies, but, but, but you can't deny that the power of a close-up, you know, the, the, the sheer emotional weight of a, of an emotional moment when you are sitting in a theater and watching a thing that is, you know, 10 times as high as you are, that is inherently going to wash over you in a way that it's not to say you don't enjoy a movie at home. I certainly do. And it's not to say that it doesn't work. They do. But that's why it's a it's a sort of hallowed experience, not because the, the movies themselves are better and that we need you to come and buy a ticket because... And the shared experience yeah. in a group. So and the shared I experience. I wanted to say that people crave the communal experience. Yeah. And the difference is in theaters, we understand what the communal experience is. But I think in television, the communal experience is that water cooler conversation. Yeah. It has become social media. You're People right. want to discuss what they've seen. They want to discuss who died in the Red Wedding or whatever. And so while it's that, happening, right. while yeah, in real time, which I don't understand. But no, that, it's, that it's, is the equivalent of going to see a movie and feeling it, you know, wash over you with hundreds of other people in the theater. Netflix is a great book um i have it up there you can't see it on my bookshelf um called the whole equation that david thompson is this um, english film writer critic and he, mm -hmm, he talks sure. about thompson's great um the shared dream you know the idea of being in a theater and having what is ostensibly a shared dream it's light it's literally in this it is light projected on a screen that you are sitting in a room of, of strangers and you are having a kind of again shared dream which i always thought was a very powerful way of describing it and you, you, never is it more uh, evident than when you go to a test screening and you're, you know, painfully sitting through uh, something not working and no one is, no one is reacting and they're laughing at things that aren't, fun. you know, it's, it's, you spend more of your time. That's why we take films to theaters to test them. I mean, obviously we take them because that's where we show them, but like, it's weird in this moment where we can't do that. We can't take films to that we need to put up in front of an audience as painful as testing is and believe me the the sort of i won't defend the, the politicized elements of of, of, of uh, testing but which sometimes can be destructive to a process but i will say there is 
incredible value in showing your film to an audience and just sort of having the fortitude to sit through it and really just be like, okay, this is where, this is where we need to look at it because it's a tool, but not having that is, is strange right now. We'll say it's a very odd thing, but just going back to, to track, it's like the reason for me that those original films, again, it was for me because I was a kid and, and because I think I fell in love with those characters. And I, you know, like everybody, when you, when you see, when you see the motion picture and you know, you, you're going around the ship with, with Kirk and Scotty the first time it is, you know, it's indelible. It's going to be with you for the rest of your life. And you're going to listen to that cue and, and uh, for the rest of your life. And it's, it's a, if you're like space stuff and science fiction, like you're, you're into it, but, but it really was the arc of those films always, you know, and again, this is an interesting point about three, which I agree with you, you know, the, the, had they been able to, and I talked to Ralph Winter about this in the past, like, you know, had they been able to go on location, had they been able to have money to even, I don't know, approximate the Genesis planet, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a real world setting, yeah. like it, it would have had, I'm not saying it would have undone some of the things that are a little bit still, you know, wonky about it and certainly some of the casting, but, but the idea of, of the moments of him deciding to, to, you know, the, the, to, to destroy the ship, you know, the, the countdown graphics aside, um, which are, which are absurd. I literally Atari like, 2600, I'm going to yeah. go on the show and I'm going to tell them they're wrong about three. And then I'm like, I can't, it's, it's, you wouldn't God, be the first. Everybody knows, tries. But, but everyone it's, tries, it's, but we won't relent. You tried and failed. It's bones. What have I done? It's what you've always done. You turned, you know, death into a fighting chance for life. I mean, it's it's those are really powerful emotional moments Absolutely. that, as I learned later, had nothing really to do with Star Trek. And so, in a funny way, learning that on Next Generation and learning, and then being able to kind of revisit the original series in a way that I again, it's different when you're a little older, you're like, okay, I, I appreciate it. I, you know, and I, I liked it, but I didn't have that experience. And then the films that were the next generation films that were made, I think suffered from the opposite. They were sort of episodes that, and as much love as I have for Ron and, and admiration, you know, for, for Brandon and everybody that worked on those films, it's like, it, 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 it's, a, it's challenging. Cause you're, I mean, I think like first contact, sure. I mean, there was at least a, a concept to it, like Star Trek Four. There's a concept, and you were like, "All right, that's what the movie's about." But you never really got to sort of visit the characters in moments of transition, you know, in moments of death or marriage or birth. You know, certainly up until well, we can talk about. We can never talk about Nemesis. No, no, no we can't. Fine, but um, <laughs> and I think that's what was so difficult about it for me because so much had been done by the time, by the end of the series, by the end of, you know, so much brilliant, brilliant character work had been done by the end of, of the show, you know, that then gave them, you know, I, I won't repeat other episode stuff about DS9 and Ira and all the ways in which that show achieved, like, like I watched The Visitor, I don't know, once, twice a year, no matter what, like it's just shows or, 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 or Far Beyond Stars, I mean, felt shows that I just need to revisit because they renew my faith in, in storytelling. Like to answer the original question about why Star Trek, it's just like, it, it, it makes you feel like no matter what the medium, this is the level of work that you want to be doing. You want to be moving people with actors that are just killing it. Okay. And well, so can funny, I lasso you, that for a second? Ahead, just like, yeah. just to kind of pull a, like a bunch of this stuff together, because 
what we keep coming back to is this notion of, um, of the emotions that are translated on screen, right? The emotional transaction between the audience member um, or audience members together communally and what they're actually watching, those images. And you said something really interesting about the idea of sitting in a theater and looking at this projection of a face that's 40 feet high, right? And you can get things you know, in those moments, those little shots, it's like talking about Jim Mangold um, wanting to look at Christian Bale, right? And when it, he slows down the car, it's not about you, any asshole can shoot the car slowing down, right? It's not that. It's him making a choice. And there's emotion on his face that translates into action and this thing that he does. And because of that, we all experience it, right? There's, um, speaking of racing movies, but this one isn't very good. Um, Emil Hirsch like told me this story about um, about Speed Racer, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and Matthew Fox was like shooting one of his scenes as Racer X, and you know the Wachowskis kept making him do it and do the scene and do the scene and do the scene, and every time he did the scene, the direction was okay. Bring it down just a little bit. Bring it down just a little bit, until finally Matthew Fox was like, "But I'm not doing anything at all. I'm doing nothing," and the Wachowski said, "Yeah, man, but nothing is cool forty feet high." <laughs> Right. Like there's there's something to that. Yeah. Like it's it's not just about the um, the when we talk about production value and scale, it's not just about the scale of the of the things that we're shooting about the sets, about the props, about the special effects. It's about the scale of the emotions. Like um, for me, the Star the Star Trek films, the ones that not just the ones that I personally love, but the ones that hit right. Uh, Star Trek two, Star Trek four, Star Trek first contact. I, I love two out of those three. Um, I think one of the reasons why they were successful was because they looked at, um, for better or worse, they looked at some element of Star Trek in a new way. And because it was a new way of looking at it, it made it accessible, right? Star Trek was never like what Star Trek II is. Star Trek II was something new under the sun. Star Trek IV was something new under the sun. And for Next Generation, First Contact was very different. At least it was far more different from Next Generation than the other films were. You know? So I think what we're really getting at is, when you're talking about, about all of this, it's not, what are the fans like? It's about what makes a fan, right? So... When you're when you're balancing all of that, when you're pulling all of that together, when you're watching a movie, you know in your guts, right? And I'm talking about you watching this as as an executive, right? When you're sitting alone in that screening room or virtually alone in that screening room, and you don't have the advantage of the communal experience, you can tell, right? From from what you're seeing, can't you? Like, can't you sort of? Oh, do you well, have you like an tell. inkling of. Ultimately, and again, you, you don't always know that, that, that fans are going to go with you in, in mass necessarily, but Logan is a great example. Like you, the first cut of that movie was pretty awesome. Like it didn't have the effects. It didn't, it was all temp. It was everything. And you were like, it's ultimately, because it is movies and television too. But I mean, I always think of films as, you know, real estate. You know, it's like you have a certain amount of real estate in every movie at, 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 to devote something to at a certain point and that is always going to be relative to pacing and it's going to be relative to kind of overall length and and that's what's always hard you know and, and what makes truly great editors and filmmakers is is figuring out you know how to how to pace the film properly because ultimately and how you when you have to make decisions to cut stuff that's like you, you love and i still and there'll be things that i as the studio be like jim you can't cut that and he's like i gotta cut it and I'm like, you can't. And he was like, right. And yet I still miss it. And I'm like the studio executive telling him to keep it in. And that's like terrible. 
but it, it's 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 interesting because I always find when um, the 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 and it's and it's funny to think about Star Trek Two in that way. You know how much real estate of that movie is devoted to scenes like you know Kirk and McCoy in his apartment. You know, it's not just the exchange of the gifts; it's the sitting down by the fireplace and having like you could be looking at a cut of the film and be like, you know what, you may be able to figure out how to not have, or at least a very truncated version of that second part. That's usually what happens. People go, right. well, we can have the first part, but let's let's pace, let's get past the second part. We don't need that. You're so anxious to get to the yeah. shooting. <laughs> so you're saying the same thing. We got to get to the Reliant. Come on, we got to get to the Reliant. And it's like I'm having a conversation as though I was there in 1982 <laughs> to, to, to talk about as the studio. Um, but it's what happens. It's the same. It's the same language, and it's always the right thing. So you're always trying to kind of push it to the limit of feeling, you know, okay, this is its right fighting weight. But you 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 realize at the end of the day, like it's it is fundamentally about trusting that the that the material is working well enough that the audience is going to give you that equity. I mean, another really good example. I mean, not to quote Logan again, but, but when, when the scene in the um, tank, when, uh, in the, when we first introduced Charles right. in the, in the overturned water tank where Logan brings him his medication and he has the, he has the um, uh, attack, the scene was like seven pages long. And it was like, guys, like this scene was great. And it was always really, like, guys, the scene's net. Like, can we, can we, scenes, and it, but, like the, the backstory of that is just simply the movie one of the other great things about Jim and, and about Scott Frank when they were doing this part of it was Jim would always say that, like, I hate those the scenes in the lab. Like, I hate the scene with the kid because initially the script started or version of the movie started with um, the kids escaping from, like, a teaser. Like, a kids are escaping from this um, facility and, and then you cut to Logan and he's wherever he is in, in Mexico. And Jim's like, I keep pushing that stuff downstream. Down, like, let's just start with Logan. He's driving a cab. He's driving a limo. That was the other thing. He called me over Christmas when he's like, I got it. He's a limp. He's a, he's an Uber driver. I'm like, you're in an Uber. Like, no, Logan's an Uber driver. I'm like, are you, are you drunk? Like, what are you talking about? Like, that's my job is to say, are you crazy? Comic books in the movie. That's a terrible idea. Only to be proven wrong every time. But, but he kept pushing he and, and, and Scott Frank, who was writing at the time, kept pushing those scenes. Um, you know, anytime you would cut away from, from Logan down the line. It was like one piece where he cut to Boyd Holbrook, but what it did was, I mean, it created a problem where they ultimately had to figure out how to put all that stuff. They came up with the brilliant thing of watching it on, on the phone, but you had this really simple story all of a sudden, like it wasn't a movie about different, oh, you're cutting here, you're cutting there. It's just, you're following these characters and everything happens with him. Like he sees the girl, she goes away. You don't go away with her, like you stay with him. So that scene, in the tank, I was like, I don't even know how to cut it. Like, I'll give you some suggestions, but I do think we have to cut this. He's like, no, shot the whole scene. The whole scene's in the film because it just was that good. You were just like, the, the scene's good and the audience loved it. And so ultimately it's like, you, you, you're gonna have to have the confidence to do that, you know? And I think that even, that, that's the point is that even in something like Star Trek or Logan or any of these movies where we associate, you know, a, a kind of, other value, visual effects, you know, events, ships, uh, you know, action, which all of those films eventually deliver. But what makes people sit up and go, oh, that's, that's good, is that they're about the characters. Yeah. And that's, I will say, and this is the, the, and Ash can kind of, I'm sure speak to this in, in his own experience, which is 
the development process in feature films, which is often, you know, always well-intentioned and, and, and a thing you kind of have to go through in the sense of like, you know, you get a script, you have to kind of figure out what you need to do to kind of move it forward. And, you know, there problems come when there's lots of different people and different points of view and the writers sitting there having to negotiate all of this. But what I found interesting always is that that process is usually always really about plot. You know, it's always about the mechanics of what's happening when and basically what the characters are doing. And a lot of times what happens is, it's like sometimes when people say, well, I missed that, I missed the first draft. And it's like, well, the reason you missed the first draft is not necessarily because it was perfect or that it was ready to go, but it was, Felt fresh it was a kind there. of serendipity. There was, there were edge to the characterization, to the dialogue. There were things that kind of felt more real that inadvertently get sanded down, not even sanded down, but just sort of lopped off or economized because the story needs to take um, precedence. And the thing that, again, I, I keep saying I don't learn anything, and it's like, what I've learned is people don't, it's not that the story's not important, it is, but people care, the audience cares about the characters. The audience always cares about the people, no matter what kind of movie it is, how it makes them feel, and what those characters are doing. Yeah, it's the and journey, that not the destination. It's not what development, unfortunately, is always kind to. Everybody wants it. Everybody sort of has that in mind. But it's not the thing, because you can't, what am I supposed to say? Ashley, look, I want this character to say this, or I, I think he needs to say something different here. It's like, that's never the note. The note is like, this is too long. We got to get to this. This reversal needs to be here. This needs to get to here. We got to figure out the motivation. I mean, you talk about the motivations right. of the characters, but like you never, it's always the writer's job to kind of, uh, and this is why I'm always beyond empathetic to the job. It's so much easier to do what I do, just read and, say shit versus having to actually create something but that to have great empathy and respect and appreciation for for a writer whose job it is to to preserve what made it special to begin with while also processing and synthesizing all the important feedback that in terms of what the studio is going to want what the producers want what, what will get the movie made and that is hard it is so hard oh it's impossible i mean the here's the thing that i I am learning and I have been learning uh, working on my, my show that cannot yet be named. Um, which I is, love it. I thought this would be the moment. This would be the moment, right? <laughs> you know, right now, the big revelation. I don't even know what it is. It's like, nobody does. I don't even know. They didn't even tell me. Um, as, I'm, as I'm taking episodes and I'm recutting them, um, and I am kind of, in some cases, taking episodes with multiple stories and reimagining structure, right? And what I find myself doing more and more is taking a point of view um, and taking a piece of story that's real story and saying, forget it, I'm not going to transition in and out of this. I'm just going to take this and I'm going to tell this piece in a run. Um, and I want this piece of story to talk to that piece of story. And, and what I mean by that is I, I want those emotions to, to build on each other. And the thing that I'm coming to, and I think that, that this is maybe kind of the, the key to all realities when it, when it comes to notes, like why we give notes on things, right? It's, I think beyond just, you know, story isn't plot, story may also not be character. But I, I think story may no, just no, be no. that emotional continuity, right? right? It's when we're getting into reading something or we're watching something and we feel it. And we get carried along, and we can get carried along by anything. We can forgive a, a lot of mistakes. You know, Spielberg talks about this thing, um, you know, visceral logic. Mm -hmm. 
uh, right? We get carried along by the visceral logic of story. As long as we're not violating that, right. then then the story feels good and it feels right. We can do a lot of things mm-hmm. that the audience will overlook. But the second that we violate that, right. then all of a sudden those logical things pop up. It and snaps the audience out. out. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's always that balancing act. And it's, it's funny when, you know, we get notes on these things, you know, from executives, when it's a, a you know a really great executive like who's just and look there are just like there are good writers good directors great you know we're you know. all human beings and yes, capable exactly. of great destruction and damage and but also great beauty and joy um, <laughs> you know, it's like I crave risk is our business notes. it is <laughs> I I crave those notes because it's that honest feedback of you know we're all in this process of wanting to make this incredible thing together and it's you know where where am i losing you you know where am i you know causing like the wheels to fall off the bus and and that's what i think like it could be really amazing it's like you're talking about the the testing process you don't really know um until you put it in front of an audience until until you put it in front of a bunch of people that have no idea what you've gone through that's and, exactly no, right. and don't give a shit. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. Forgive it's my important French. to get that, right? It's like, you, you don't know, like, if I turn in a script to you, you don't you don't know, like, how many days I spent beating my head against the wall. That doesn't enter into it. You're just no. like, words on a page. So can I pitch my Enterprise B fan fiction now, or is it... <laughs> oh, my God. Right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Well, I, no, but I you, have to say... You should, you, you, did, sh- you should leave a voicemail for Jim Janopoulos. <laughs> I've already I've already pitched it. It's, it's, it's more of a it's more of a comic or novel situation, but it's it's a very good idea. Trust you, me. You you really helped crystallize for me why those a lot of those Star Trek movies don't work, which is something you alluded to earlier, which is, you know, when the show when the movies did something you could have done on the show, it doesn't work. And, you know, I'm not talking about this motion picture. Yeah, you could argue was the changeling. But what it did in terms of telling that story was something they could have never done yeah. in no, the original and series. It's, it's a, the motion picture was a pioneering moment in, in movies and in visual effects and in Robert Wise film. There are so many aspects of the film that are that are themselves movie worthy, uh, you know, not just the sort of return, you know, because, again, it hadn't been done to that degree. A television show which had been canceled. I mean, all the the history of it totally it was but, but it, it, next it's, generation it's, was always trying to live up to all good things and it never well, could that's those movies. The, and look and that was the you know hearing it was very interesting hearing brandon's uh brandon's episode and and i think you know my i kind of carry my own you know and i i've become friends with braun and i think he's giant you know amazing talented and, and, and awesome amazing guy and i was like i remember walking out of that movie and going wait so you know, and again, this is where you sit there and you're like, here's what I would want to do. You know, I want to see it. How do you not get Kirk on the bridge of that ship? You know, where if it's going to crash, he gets he to crash be. the Enterprise yeah. D, yeah. you know, and and the idea of like of, of the later movies where, again, you see the possibility. Insurrection has an amazing idea, like the kind of core potential of that idea. You know, you want it to be you know, Hunt for an October with Picard. I mean, you want to be a movie where you're focusing, I mean, that, like, you're talking about what you do, like, it's a new, basically, he's Mark Arrhenius, like, he goes mm-hmm. rogue, the greatest captain takes their ship and goes rogue, and you've got this crew that has to go after him, and they're like, it's Picard. Um, movies that, I mean, stories that are, again, less 
that's the thing is that that the next generation movies I think showed and again I think they 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 have their pleasures in in moments and obviously it's always great to see those actors but they neither they expose the problem of not being able to kind of tell the part of Star Trek that's about exploration it's about the hope that's really at the core of why the show what I was talking about earlier is why it's so durable is because it represents everything that is possibly great about us in, in, in every era that it exists. And it's always ahead of both in terms of its diversity and its, its inclusion. And, and it, and it takes those things, you know, not as like, you know, when you have the first African-American star of the show is just, that's business as usual. When you have Janeway, you know, that's just what the show's about. When you have, you know, Anthony Rapp having, you know, the first gay relationship on Discovery, that's just business. Like they present it in such a way where it's not, it's not tokenistic. It's actually mm-hmm. what you, this is, it's, it's totally part of the, 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 part of the yeah. clock. And the yeah. great yeah. power of that cannot be understated. And and the, none of those things are part of what the movies are about, which doesn't make them not potentially good movies. Right. It's just, you have to really take those characters to a kind of depth you know, and a kind of moment of like, you know, like I said, movies are always about transformation in some way. And so what that's why two, three, four in particular feel the way they do, even for their, for their foibles is because they're, it's a series about a a bunch of characters and, and, and one guy dying and the family's sort of the lengths that they will go to try to bring them back. And then I guess, you know, save the whales is important too. Well, before I ask you to give some unsolicited advice to Paramount, I want to ask you one thing that you alluded to at the very beginning of the show. You t- you know, you talked about the Alien franchise a little bit. You talked about, obviously, X-Men with Logan, which in a way I think made Picard possible, for better or for worse. Um, but they took a lot of lessons from, you know, the obviously Professor X character and how he was treated in Logan. And uh, but But I want to ask you this. Uh, you know, when you're developing a film, there's enough riding on it, enough challenges. But when it's something that touches you to your very soul, that inspired you, like Planet of the Apes, mm-hmm. like, um, you know, uh, Fantastic Four, like The Day the Earth Stood Still, these are all movies that you worked on that presumably growing up, you know, you were a huge fan of and, and, and were part of your, your, your love for genre. Does that complicate it? Does that make it easier? It, it, Is there more writing does. on it? It's funny. Each one of those movies you mentioned sort of, I, 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 I touched at a different point in my life and career in terms of, you know, Day of the Earth Stood Still, which I, I learned a lot on that film. And I, look, I, I think it was certainly fun to make and Keanu's awesome. And, and the, the idea of, of kind of trying to bring that at the time, you know, making it in 2007, that came out in 2008, but like, the idea of saying, okay, we're going to tell that story again in a more relevant, and in that case, kind of, you know, what happens post 9 11 when Alien lands in New York. It, the problem ultimately with it, or the, I'd say that not so much the problem with the film, but the ultimate challenge that I found speaks to the whole remake culture in general, which is ultimately when you're dealing with a film that is, you know, not only a classic by any standard, but is a film that also happens to have been borrowed from a million times by so many other films that even as we tried to kind of, you know, everyone tried their best to to make it new and feel refreshed in its way. And and, and certainly Scott Derrickson did and and Keanu and everybody involved, um, like everybody, again, it's that thing. Nobody sets out to make a a movie that doesn't work. It's like 
everybody was really great. Like, I'm not even just saying it, like really great ambitions. It was just ultimately, it was a film that people felt like they saw before. And the reason they felt like they'd seen it before was because they had, it, even if they hadn't seen or knew about the original film. And so you learn that that's the, the challenge is that you don't get credit for, for, for doing the thing that, you know, maybe people know the, the, the title to. And I think that there's, to answer that question, I think there's a lot, especially now where when as much as people talk about IP and, and its importance, and it does, I mean, I work at a company that actually, you know, does a great job of, of, of making these films. And certainly what Marvel and Kevin does is, 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 is remarkable. Um, it's just, it's often, and I think actually Marvel is a great example of that is that it actually, you have to approach this stuff almost where the IP and the title is, is if not an obstacle, then it's a hill. Like you have to actually, every film has to have its reason for being. And it cannot be because you've heard of the title before. Right. And I think that's, there are probably exceptions to that, but that's the heart of what I think is this, this sort of cynical expectation that the audience now has is because then they're not wrong all the time. You know, it's like, oh, well, it looks like they just made it because they could. And that is something where I feel like the business was doing that for a long time because, you know, there was, there was so much, um, to be made between home video, between international, between all these things. It was like, we, when I was working at, at the studio in the two thousands, like it was just, they wanted more movies and it was just like, okay, library, how do we do that? You know, it's like, it's what I, you know, you learn like it's impossible to curate five good movies a year versus 15. And I think it's, it's an, it's an area that the business is still struggling with in a way because we still are programming for a sort of distribution pipeline that requires a certain degree of volume. And, and it's very hard to do that. And I think part of what's interesting about working at Disney now and, and, and the studio being, we're now 20th Century Studios, which, which uh, is- You got rid of the toxic Fox label, yes. Well, that, yes, there was that certainly, <laughs> but I think people, well, we've gotten a lot of uh, questions, I think, to put it kindly about, you know, wh why keep the 20th century, why not 21st Century Studios or whatever? And I think it, it, it's, 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 it's true, but on the other hand, we felt, and I wasn't a part of, it was before my tenure in this job, but I agreed with it that, that, you know, there's over 80 years of legacy to this company that we really care about, you know, and feel like we're still custodians of. And so, you know, we definitely, Disney wanted to, to, to distance, not distance, but just like Fox was now a different trademark. I mean, it was a different company. Sure. And I think we, we all felt like, you know, we wanted to retain not just the logo and the, and the fanfare, which are important to us emotionally, but to be, you know, like even if we're making six movies a year versus 15 or, you know, not, not including the films for Hulu, um, that they would still stand in that lineup, you know? Uh, uh, and I think, so anyway, uh, I think it's really, um, it's, it's with IP, just going back to that, it's, it's not assuming that, Day of Sid Still or Fantastic Four or, you know, but, oh, well, people know it, so it's going to be fine. I mean, you have to figure out why. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they work less well than others, but that's unfortunately the way sometimes the souffle comes out of the oven. It goes like this, sometimes it goes like this. But I certainly can look back on, on some experiences and be like, that was a cynical decision. That was the problem lay in that thinking not in the attempt to do something different that failed. That was just like, we made that movie because we could. And, and I imagine you grew up on the 4.30 movie in New York uh, watching Planet of the Apes week. Uh, uh, well, or maybe you so might be a little young for that. 
But well, in any event, I, I, I grew up I, I would in New Jersey outside of Philadelphia. It was pretty extraordinary as well. I mean, if there's another touchstone of sort of 60s geek culture that looms almost as large as Star Trek, it's uh, besides James Bond, uh, it's probably Planet of the Apes. Well, and that's, look, the, the amazing thing about that was I remember I didn't work on the last movies, um, but I was in the room when, when all those discussions were happening. And I remember the, the conversation about, you know, wait, it's a, it was, it, I think it was right alongside the a 1960s X-Men movie. What, what are you guys, what, what are you idiots talking about? Uh, it was, it was a, it, no, it was the same, it was the same, some of the same meetings where it was like, you know, a, a, a modern day, a contemporary Planet of the Apes movie where the ape is the protagonist. It was like, no way. Right. And so it speaks to, in both of those cases, actually, I mean, it speaks to, I think, the, the, the kind of creative boldness prevailing. And I actually think in that period, 2010, 2011, it, Rise of the Planet of the Apes and First Class are two of the most important movies that we made in the company in 15, 20 years. Because without those films being and i sort of believe this that those a company is sort of um uh you know um the creative health of a company is in part determined by the the taking on of those risks and and when they turn out well as they did in both of those cases you know it's like you didn't get days of future past without first class you didn't get uh um dawn of the planet of the apes without rise and the sort of basic story of of uh, and the and the fact in in, in the case of apes the risk, which they didn't know it was going to work, you know, even though, uh, you know, they'd seen Gollum, obviously, um, uh, the, the technology worked to some degree, but never, they, they, I mean, they had originally talked about using real ape, and of course that, that didn't last very long. And so it, it, the boldness of doing it is partly why I think it worked. And I will say, like, when I first saw, I was invited to see a cut, an early cut of the movie, and it didn't have any of the of the um, effects in, and I was like, "These guys are in trouble." Like, I don't know if this could work. <laughs> and it was just to see the end. You're like, "Oh yeah, that's a real performance." What what circus does, and and some of the other apes, um, and what we're doing next. I mean, we have a, a really really cool idea um, to continue that series in a very different way, um, which uh, now that I'm, I'm I get to sort of be a part of those things too, and it's that that's. Dude, it's the greatest. It's the greatest thing ever because you're just like you get to kind of, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants and really kind of continue the story. Which, you know, kind of going back to the alien conversation, it is, you know, it's like you can almost look at the prequel era of our culture. You know, from 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 the Star Wars prequels, you know, on, you know, including JJ's films. Like going, although in fairness to JJ, like those stories hadn't been told. It wasn't like you had ever seen. Kobayashi Maru and it seemed that you'd only sort of heard about it, but the, but the idea of like, we're going to go back and tell how it all came to be was a sort of, you can feel the kind of cultural era for that. And I, and I feel it's limiting, man. It's hard. Those are hard to do. Cause you're like, I mean, I think that in Prometheus, you know, I, I think that was LB 426 until like we finished the film and they were like, Oh wait, it, it, it no, it, it can't be that. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, and these are like fans. Like these are people that are like, oh, we, and you're like, oh crap. How did we, oh yeah. Like that <laughs> shit was going to fall. And that was going to be the dreadnought that, that, that the Nostromo was going to find. And it, it was, um, and again, I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not being too hard on, because I do love those films. It's just, as you guys know, when you work on something, you're like, oh, here's what we should have done. Here's what it, of course, it should have been. You can only see the flaws. Hour. 
but I want to take advantage. I want to wrap up by taking advantage of of your largesse and asking you to give some free advice to Viacom on the future of the Star Trek franchise. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> um, so what what do you think? they should be doing because you know Harv Bennett once referred to Star Trek as a beached whale and I'm not going to even talk about the TV part of it the equation but the feature equation you know obviously uh, these movies are very expensive they have to overperform foreign Uh, they haven't been doing that they haven't well, been able to get the never new movie been off. Doing that. I mean, weirdly, they've never been doing that until you know Into Darkness which is actually a very big international number for the Star Trek films um, you know, I think, I mean, it's complicated because on one hand, you know, there've been three of these films with this, the Kelvin cast. And I think there is a lot of goodwill, you know, when I talk to kind of younger people who, who, you know, know something about Star Trek and certainly know some of the original, like really like, I'm not saying they grew up on these, but it is amazing to think like that was 2009. Like that was we're 10 years. We're, God, that's, we're old. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's interesting because I, I would have, I would hope that, and again, far be it from me to uh, to give advice to my friends uh, at that company. But it's 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 if there's a way to, I guess, integrate, and maybe this will be possible with the merger, um, the the television and feature plans in a way where we're not. I'm not saying kill the Kelvin movies because they deserve to be killed. I mean, you know, sort of take advantage of both sort of sort of storytelling techniques in the sense that if there are big kind of going back to what we were saying like you know i'm not i'm not saying this is what they should do with picard or or i'm sure they have season many seasons ahead and plans and so i don't think it's necessarily about you know if picard hadn't existed i would have said do the hunt for october with picard introduce a new crew that is going to be sort of tasked with doing this thing that you will then hopefully develop enough of a, of a, of a affinity for that they'll be able to take you through new movies. But the problem is that's the thing is that the films, as we've just all been talking about, you can't really start a new movie series with a new cast and expect it to just be fun. You have to have had some degree of a, 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 a love for what you appreciated in the show and I don't know, again, because Discovery is a, is a prequel show, how you would then make a movie that then took place, it, 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 it's, it's tricky. So, I mean, I would have said before Picard that you would have, you know, found ways to revisit the next generation characters. And, you know, in my dream, you know, Cisco comes back and you have a, a, a story about that character, um, you know, where, and again, but it's, even as I say it, I'm like, it depends on you having watched DS9 and knowing the you know ins and outs of this. So it really is, I think, primarily about developing a a real TV um, canon, you know, that you will ultimately be able to draw upon in five to ten years to then say, oh, those people you grow up with on that show, here's where this one dies. Here's where but, this one gets mad. But Steve, it isn't? Let me just play devil's advocate. Isn't the difference? that those characters were iconic. The, the people could parody them on Saturday Night Live because they had been on a network television show, which yeah. a lot of people saw, and then syndication for many years. So people knew, I mean, even this day, they're remaking the original over and over again. Spock, Kirk, these are iconic characters. The new shows, whether you love them or not, 
on a streaming service. It's yeah. a, a minuscule amount of people in the scheme of things that know who these characters are. So can you build a franchise off of characters that are obscure? Already, I mean, for lack of a no, better I think word. You make a great, I mean, you make the, the most important point, frankly, which is sort of the, the, what you said about the network and even the syndication versions of the shows from TNG on, which were, you know, shown you know at a time where millions and millions and millions of people were tuning in to, to the show to television, and I think it is look, it's unfortunate in a way that I mean, I get the business sense of saying, well, you got to pay for the service to see Star Trek, but it's like, uh, yeah, you wish that that there were still enough of a sort of network uh, ecosystem where it would be a thing you could see if you just had basic cable or you just had you know television. But you're right. I mean, I don't know. That's what I'm saying. It's hard for me to pick a particular part of the show and say, oh, I want to see the the Michael Burnham. And I think she's a phenomenal actor, by the way. I think she's one of the Absolutely. best things about all of it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, because again, I wouldn't know where to even pick it up. I mean, part of what I always loved about about and wanted to see more about the, about the Next Generation movies and wanted to see more of, and then sort of with the, with the, what the Kelvin timeline kind of does differently is what's next. I mean, I think part of what's great about Star Trek is always, and why I was at the end of Picard, I'm like, there are the ships, there's the fleet, like, it, oh my God, there's the, you know, I hate to say that I just, I, mean, I, I am also interested in what's happening with the galaxy and, and, and technology mm -hmm. and Star Trek, and, and Starfleet rather. Um, so I guess, you know, it, it's it's an interesting, and I don't know, well, I have heard about about the Tarantino idea. Um, it is as bonkers as, as as I, as you expect, um, it might be cool. I mean, it's certainly a text in your future, by the way, but, uh, it, it, it's, certainly, uh, it, it, it's, it's, I can't say that, you know, I wouldn't want to see a great filmmaker's version of, of something. I mean, if anything, but I think maybe the answer to that is if you were to take, uh, to look at it as like a movie series and to try to start, what I'm saying is you're, you're, you're sort of taking Star Trek and saying, all right, what would the next, iconic character story be on a new ship or an enterprise or whatever it is, um, you know, in the future of what, of next generation of 24th century and not, but you'd be basically giving up, which look, they're not doing it in the shows now of the, and maybe they will in this new one, um, uh, the Pike show, um, more of that exploration storyline. So it's not happening in these shows so much now. So maybe you could find a filmmaker um, you know, who is able to kind of, you know, Paul Greengrass something, I don't know, make something where there is a much greater kind of, you know, in the way that we love what Nick Meyer did in the kind of naval, uh, you know, hornblower uh, ideas, you know, where you were able to kind of see his, the, the tall ship version of it, which was always compelling about the way those ships moved and how they worked and, you know, master and commander. Well, I, I'm working on that too. That was the first time I worked on it, Fox, actually. Uh, I worked, many, many years I worked ago. on it down in Baja, and it was the best Star Trek movie I ever worked on. It, it was a great joy. I remember uh, having to kind of, um, my first day uh, watching dailies and getting the note that supposedly Russell was told to take off his hat and why it was his hat still on. <laughs> and I was to get on the phone with, with Peter Weir yeah. and tell him to take off his hat. And I was like, does he mean right now? And so I picked up a phone in the screening room 
and I like pretended to dial and I was like, Oh, I was like, I left a message and I just, hung up. Oh I was God. so paranoid. I was really fired. <laughs> um, but I, I'm actually working on a, a version that, you know, kind of starting from the first book, you know, meeting nice. Jack and Steven as young, as young men. Nice. Um, but yes, that, that's a good point. I mean, it is really, uh, if you could find a, a real character writer and, Oh, do we know? Do we know any? Uh, sorry, I was like, <laughs> if you could find them, wh where are they? Like the A team. It's like, where? Who? Do you know anybody that's a writer of, of the? Where would I find such a man? Where would I find <laughs> someone like that? Um, because Mark, I think you're right. I mean, you 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 you're sort of pointing out the flaw in what I'm saying, which I think is true, because it's like you ultimately are like you can't uh, expect that the shows it doesn't matter good or bad. I mean, that they're going to achieve the kind of cultural impact that those original shows did. And I think you can see in the Kelvin films, you know, a very game attempt, certainly in the first film to kind of, you know, capitalize on that and in a very clever way, you know, try to remix it and try to kind of at least make it canon to the extent that you had Leonard in it. And it was always kind of wonderful to see him. And, you know, I still think the, the beauty of that film and, um, I love Dan Mendel's work, uh, it was JJ's DP, just how, you know, they were like, hey, it's an action movie. It may not be what we, what we, and again, I will, I, Scott, Mance, wherever you are, I love you. I love listening to your voice. Um, your enthusiasm. A man has enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. <laughs> One of mine, it gives me joy. Sorry. Um, we take him to the morgue. Yeah. <laughs> so, but then I think maybe the answer is you've got to, you've got to sort of find someone who's willing to, Kind of master and commander that that's steeped enough in the the texture of what I mean. Look, and I'd say this is what Jim. I'm not to bring it back. Jim, this is what Jim does. So Mangle's well. busy. He's a little. No, busy. well, he's he's he is he is always going to find, and he's going to do it with Indiana Jones. I mean, he's going to find the 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 elegant, emotionally grounded thing, which ultimately I feel it becomes. And again, I can't speak for, for, for that film in particular, but like it will be its reason for being, you know, not it's because, you know, there's one more in him or whatever in Harrison or, or in, but, and there is, I mean, Harrison's, I did a film with him this last year and he's, I Call mean, wild. he's amazing. I mean, he's just the, the, I mean, talk about sitting in a tent with that guy and trying not to and get high, eventually failing and saying something. And he just, Look, he did one thing where I was I, I I talked about seeing Blade Runner. We were all having a conversation about something, and I was like, uh, "We're talking about Blade Runner." Uh, and I was like, "Well, I did. My dad took me when I was nine. He just looked at me and walked out of the tent dramatically." And everyone's <laughs> like, "Oh!" And he walked back. And he was like, Try telling him to take off his hat. Good luck with that. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> but but it takes that it takes that kind of filmmaker who is. Again, I don't think it's a matter of someone who isn't a fan because I think that's a weird, you know, you, Star Trek is, you know, you gotta have it's, some, you gotta love someone, someone talented in storytelling who can find the essential elements that are necessary for making it, you know, work. And that's Nick Meyer. I mean, that's the story of Star Trek Two. except in that case, they did have the advantage of those, of that cast, you know, and of, of the great love and affection for those, for those actors and those characters. And the fact that he was able to bring that all together in a film that just, even at whatever, eight years old, I was like, this is the best movie I ever made. Like I, I was like a week where I was, I saw it. I think I made my parents take me like three times. <laughs> and it was, it, 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 and so yeah, like three, like when three came out, I was like, 
it's not as good, but it's still awesome. I'm sorry. Yeah. I can't. I keep bringing it back to Star Trek Three. I'm like, it's okay. Don't be ashamed about things you love. That's right, but don't make us relitigate that episode right. again because don't <laughs> it was get a really good episode. <laughs> it was a really good episode. Um, but I'll, I'll send you a list of ideas of writers and directors nice. um, that you can forward over to to Jim. Don't who worry, my boss not for listening years. to us either. <laughs> no, I'm going to send this to him. He was he was my okay. boss for for I know years, all those uh, years. Well. Tell him, and because uh, we know you want more Eagle Moss ships, and then I they're have, done until you, have, you can come up with some new ships. You know. Uh, my wife will only let me keep a certain amount. I think I got to move them in here for, for this, but, uh, yeah, yeah, the office is fair game. I know we're in the house. Got It's, 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 uh, got to keep things under control. It starts to spread like the green slime and then you get no, 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 there's too much crap around. I don't know if your kids, (laughs) uh, you know, I, I had all my old Star Wars stuff, which I had to give up the ghost on, you know, a long time ago. And it just sort of sits among the other toys, things that are 30 years old and, you know, haven't probably been washed since then, but are, are, are mixed in with, uh, you know, the Marvel figures. And I'm just like, I, okay. Is, uh, no, okay. I, saved, I saved all that stuff and it has gone to good use. It was unfortunate, though, when he started wanting my Star Trek toys. Those I was less <laughs> sanguine about giving up. And then the James Bond sideshow toys were very powerful. Oh, is, it, you can't uh, do that. Well, is, this, uh, this I, was the art of saying no. This no, was a sorry. gift. Brian no, Fuller gave me this. Nice. Uh, Brian has the oh, best nice. toy collection. My seven-year-old was like, oh, I'm opening this. Nope. And I'm like, do you want to be eight? Like, <laughs> is, where do you want me to bury you? Steve, yeah, is well, is that an Indiana Jones hat behind you? Uh, that is, yeah. That's that, what I thought. That okay, good for you. Years. Good. <laughs> and a uh, a Last Crusade hat. Sorry, this is just um nice. Nice. As long as it's not ki- a crystal skull. No, no, that's that's found in the, in the DVDs. But Darren, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, I gave oh. Brian a, a Moonraker one sheet. Nice. Oh, you did? Because he's a huge, he loves, he's a he's huge fan of Moonraker. A, he's watching movies. I know now we're going off. The, you probably edit this out. We're, we're watching. Uh, <laughs> no, we uh, he's watching a Bond movie every Saturday night. Nice. Yeah, yeah. In, I know. He's in summer. for some painful Saturday nights. Oh. It's it's not going to be what the Bay City Rollers thought of Saturday night. He's, <laughs> he's it's going to be it's going to be like the Shabbat. He's going it's going to be very painful and 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 quiet and 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 serene. Uh, so anyway, Steve, this was uh, <laughs> this was great. I'm so, so glad that we had you on the show. On. Thank you. No, it's it's a thrill, and uh, I mean I could talk to you for another few hours, but um, we 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 need to wrap up uh, because. Uh, Bill Riddle, Bill Riddle, our, our, our sound engineer, who's who's pulling his what hair he has left out already over these Zoom interviews. But normally we're in the studio and we sound yeah. so good, and the Zoom has just been you know, know really everybody. tough. Natalie, for Bill, I, I, I'm a regular, I'm a regular listener, man. I, I know, know, I know I'm, all of them. I can't wait to see them again when we're in the studio because we don't get the little asides uh, from them when uh, when we're doing it this way. But uh, it's been a great opportunity for us to talk to people that we wouldn't normally be able to talk to either because they're too busy or because they're not geographically, you know, in at Los Angeles. So um, yeah. we've really the next, you know, few months we're really loaded up with some really amazing people of which you were one so thank you for I, that. I really appreciate you having me uh, having nothing to do with star trek on your star trek podcast so i well I who feel... knows Let's see if jim uh, makes a good choice there and uh you know yeah. i mean 
There was a point I mean, in which uh, who would have thought that uh, Kevin Feige would be running the Marvel Universe, and it was the best uh, choice believe that me, uh, I knew, Disney I ever knew made. So, uh, Kevin, when well, he was uh, uh, Lawrence uh, Lodon's uh, assistant, and he was always amazing. I mean, he's a, he's a wonderful human You're, being. So. I love Kevin. The fervor I, of your fandom keeps you warm, so... Yes. <laughs> well, great, Steve. Well, again, thanks for, for joining us in the evening with the Trexperts, and uh, um, we hope to Keep have you back. Talking. There's so much more to talk about. Ingloriously? Sorry. <laughs> no, I just, no, I'm I just, not, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, okay, well, you know what? Since you said this it, is I'm the gonna, problem I'll, of having fans on. You're just like, I know the whole beat. I'll do the ending. What, what am I going to plug now? I'm going to plug the Electric Now app. This is when I tell the audience that if they want to watch us, they can download yes. the free Electric Now app to watch their favorite podcasts, including Inglorious Trexperts, the 430 movie, which you listen to, um, and uh, Best Movies Never Made, uh, Rebel and the Rogue, a Star Wars podcast, all available on the free Electric Now app. We want to send a very special thanks to Bill Ritter, our sound engineer, and, of course, our producer, Natalie Viscali, our production coordinator, um, Zach Raggetts and uh, research consultant uh, Peter Holmstrom. And we hope you'll join us next Saturday for an all new episode of Inglorious Trexperts. And until then, Steve. Keep on trekking. Ingloriously, of course. Shh. Engage. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.